can turn in uh, your copy of the scriptures to Revelation chapter 21. Uh, we'll do verses 1 through 8, which it really, it's very interesting. This passage is so rich, and yet you could view it as sort of a table of contents for the rest of Revelation uh, for the last two chapters, as we're going to, the things that we touch on tonight, we'll go even deeper in uh, as we finish out the book. It's just the way the book is structured. Um, but I want to uh, consider for a moment as this, I'll go ahead and tell you this passage is about heaven, and um, probably a familiar passage, I hope, to a great number of you. Uh, so, but before we even read it, I want us to consider why this vision of heaven would be given to us. I want us to remember the context that this is written to, to churches who are either suffering persecution or about to, and they're, they're experiencing great temptations uh, from the world uh, to turn back and to indulge in the things of this world rather than giving all to follow Jesus. Uh, but just even consider the power of anticipation, of, of looking forward to something. Um, the, the other day, um, a couple weeks, weekends ago, as I was working on this message, uh, the children were just driving Christina crazy. And she comes in and, and, she, um, and she's like, they won't let me sleep. They won't, they're always needing something. My body hurts and things are falling down everywhere. I can't get any, anything done. I was like, okay, how about this? In a couple hours, I'm going to take the oldest two out for ice cream. And she's like doing a praise dance. And, you know, I was like, yes, I can do it. I'm going back in. We're going to make it. Well, you know, she, I think her, her hope quickly faded as, as she went back to the reality. And so maybe that's not the best picture uh, because, you know, that's, only the, that's not that great of a hope. But just think about the power of looking forward to something and how that helps, that gives us strength to get through things. Um, you know, as we... Some of you who went through the, through the Bible study that we've done here a couple of times for the life of the world will know what I'm talking about when I talk about prolepsis. Prolepsis is this New Testament concept of living now in light of the not yet, living the not yet now. And Scripture commands us to look forward, to look forward and live in light of this sure hope. And as we do, we give hope and life to a world that is full of despair and death. There are several gifts here that we're going to see that are promised to those who conquer, gifts that we are to look forward to. Uh, but it's interesting uh, that we are enabled to conquer um, and, and receive these gifts by looking forward to them, by being assured of them. And remember in Hebrews 11, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And in Hebrews 11, we see several examples of people who are enabled to endure hard times in this, in this world uh, because they were looking forward to a city that is yet to come. And that chief example being Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised its shame and sat down and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. He, he looked forward to the reward of his suffering. He looked forward to making you members of his bride. He looked forward to brothers and sisters, to you being adopted as sons and daughters. He looked forward to the well done of his father. And the joy in that which is, was yet to come gave him strength to endure even the cross. So looking forward, this is what we had to look forward to. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, up on the screen if you need it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as they're gone. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, I come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, how great and precious are these words. But Lord, I am nothing in myself, and these are just words on the page, unless your Holy Spirit comes and speaks to each heart, each heart here. And so would you speak through me, as is no difficulty for you. Speak to your people, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so you see on your outline that we are to anticipate these gifts of mercy and gifts of grace. Now, a little, little side note, again, by way of introduction, is we, we tend to think of the concepts of, of grace and mercy as basically the same thing, but that's not quite accurate. And being that my two oldest daughters are named Gracie and Mercy, you can imagine I've given a little bit of thought to this. Um, grace is unmerited favor. It is a free gift. It is, it is lavish generosity that is not in any way constrained by the person that it is given to. It's not obligated. It is a pure gift. That is God's grace. And, and you can think about it like this when we say the word grateful. Grateful grace is the same root word. When you are grateful for something, you are acknowledging that what you've been given is a gift. It's not deserved. Mercy, uh, it's common to think of mercy as the removal of punishment, but there's more depth to it than that. I love the Strong's definition. Is it, it defines it as kindness or goodwill towards the miserable or afflicted. Kindness or goodwill towards the miserable or afflicted. We, we decided on the name mercy when we were going through the book of Ruth as a congregation and just seeing God's mercy towards Ruth and to Naomi and to her family. And coming out of COVID, that seemed appropriate. But uh, after we had decided on the name mercy, um, Christina came across, I forget what book she was reading, but it, but it spoke of them as being sisters as being, you know, lots of similarities, lots of common traits, but, but still two different, two different people. And so we can think of them the same way. And I just thought that was very interesting. So, so gifts of mercy and gifts of grace that we are to look forward to. First, a gift of mercy, the removal of the sea and all chaos. The removal of the sea and all chaos. It said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now, I know for several of us, the beach is something we look forward to every year, right? Uh, I'm still recovering from my vacation to the beach, but I still love going to the beach every year. And uh, something that we look forward to, 
Um, and so maybe it jars us a little bit to, to, uh, to dream of a new heaven and a new earth with no sea, right? It's like, well, that's, I, I love the beach. Why, why are you taking it away? But we have to put ourselves in the shoes of a Hebrew. The Hebrews saw the sea as, as a place of violence. I mean, you just think about the waves crashing on, on the oceans, and, and, and they, they, they were landlubbers. They hated the sea. Uh, the waves themselves are violent, and as well, marauders, um, their enemies would come in from the sea. And so the sea is, is throughout Hebrew poetry, and as well here, is a symbol of, of being a source of rebellion and violence and chaos and danger and unrest. It's, it's the river in Hebrew poetry that is a symbol of peace and life because it's channeled and it's directed. And we'll see a river later here in Revelation 22. Now, before God, the sea is as glass, which is to say that it's chaos as we experience it, but to him, it's all completely calm because he reigns over it, right? Uh, but the new heaven and the new earth shall be a place of peace and eternal rest where there is not even the threat of danger or rebellion. And I don't know about you guys, but this is a great comfort to me as I've um, as reading the news sometimes, just and just even just up at 3 a.m. And, and looking at my YouTube feed, and just I can't escape all these reminders of how broken our world is, and how there's so much violence and unrest and chaos and danger, and just think, you know, not only physical things to be on guard against, but ideas to be on guard against uh, for my family, and um, all of that's going to be cast away. All of that rebellion and that chaos is going to, be, going to be done away with. The second gift that we are to look forward to is a gift of grace, and it is the consummation. The consummation. Now, this is a, um, a, a term that maybe needs some defining, and, and I think there's a reason. It's just kind of sad the reason that it needs some defining is because we don't really practice it anymore as a, as a culture, or at least less and less. But this is the term used for the making of a marriage complete. For the making of a marriage complete. A uh, little side sermon. Um, you know, there is to be an order and, and, a, and a purpose for sex. It is to seal the union between a married man and a married woman. That is when the union is consummated. That's, that's where the term comes from. Um, and the Latin means to be brought to completion. And so in the broader sense, you know, the, the term means you know, to consummate a marriage. That's what it's uh, literally about. But in the broader sense, it's the fulfillment or the full realization of a thing. Uh, as it is now, we all being members of the bride of Christ, we are betrothed to Christ, meaning we are legally married to him. But it, and it's like an engagement, but, it's, but the marriage has not yet been consummated. Okay, And so Jesus says in John 14 that he is going away to prepare a place for us. And what the, what the Hebrews would do is that they would make this betrothal, this legal offer of marriage, and they'd be legally married. But then the, uh, the husband-to-be would go off and he would add an addition onto his father's house. He would go and prepare a place for them uh, for, or for his wife. And then he would return with a shout in the night, for the marriage ceremony and take his bride home. And so that's the language that we get in John 14 is Jesus says, do not be troubled. I, I go away to prepare a place for you. My father's house has many mansions and I'm, I'm making a place for you and I will come back and this union uh, will be consummated as, he's, as speaking of the, the marriage symbol there. So this consummated union between Christ and his bride 
But there's two things here that, are, that we see being consummated. One is the created world. Notice that it is a holy city that comes down out of heaven that is prepared as a bride. Now, when we imagine being fully reconciled unto God, we imagine, and we imagine everything being as it should be, we may imagine things being like Eden again. But we actually get something more than that. God takes us beyond Eden, something better than Eden. He, what began as a garden is consummated and fully realized as a city. Uh, you know, God gives us this world in seed form. And he tells us to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with his image bearers. Everybody dance. It's okay. And, um, you know, he, he gives us a command in Genesis 1, which we'll see in January, that we are to rule and subdue this world. We are to cultivate. Uh, we are invited to partner with God in developing this world and all of its potentialities. It amazes me to consider that even though we have the mark of sin, the mark of the curse on us, and we are so prone to evil, that we still have the stamp of the image of God on us, and we can't help but create and cultivate. Just think about this pocket computer that I have. And you know the main, the main mineral that drives this thing to work? It's silicone, which comes from sand in the desert. And there's a lot of sand there. And so just, just think about that, that God gives us this world and means for us to do things like that, to, to take sand and turn it into smartphones and, and the like. So, so we have this garden that is now a city. It is, it is brought to completion. And we, and we see a continuity. It's, a, it's a, the new heavens and the new earth. It's not floating around as spirits in heaven, but he gives us a new earth. The, Jesus came with a resurrected body, and when he returns... The world will be resurrected itself, if you will. Just imagine that. The second thing that we see consummated is the, um, we see not only the maturity of creation, but the maturity of the people of God. We are completely sanctified. We are transformed into being like Christ. And the fullness of our union with Christ is now realized. 1 John uh, chapter 3, key verse on this. It says, Behold, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We will have unhindered, uninterrupted fellowship with Jesus our Lord. And when we, this says that when we see him, we'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. It's called the beatific vision, where we're transformed right away. All sin removed, all weakness, all limitations, and we are dressed in righteousness as members of the bride. Are we now a bride fit for this king, worthy of his adoration? No, we're not. But will we be? Absolutely. You can, uh, if you have your Bibles open, turn back to, to Revelation 19, and you see in verses 6, 7, and 8, this announcement about us being prepared. You know, it says that the holy city came down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in the middle of verse 6, we have this announcement. It says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's interesting to observe what, what is this fine linen that dresses us bright and pure? It's our righteous deeds or our good works. So does that say that, that we did those on our own? No, because it says in verse 8 that it was granted her to clothe herself. The, the good works that we do by his grace, by his help, uh, good works we do that are empowered by his grace are a means of preparing us for the bridegroom because these good works that we do unto him in worship for him and love for him, they are works of committing ourselves unto him whose return we long for. And as we devote ourselves to him further, our devotion is purified. What is truly astounding is that we will, it, will, it will become a gift to us to be a gift to him. It will become a gift to us to be a gift to Christ. You think of yourself and you say, I, I'm not worthy. How could he regard me as a gift unto him? Well, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his sermon on the weight of glory, that, that in that moment, God will look down into the depths of your soul and down to the very bottom and will see no more sin, but only righteousness and purity. And seeing that and adoring that, the Father will say, well done, good and faithful servant. How amazing is that? That is a gift to us to be a gift to him, to be rightly praised and adored by Christ the bridegroom. Third gift that we are to look forward to, a gift of grace. The fullness of the presence of the living God. The fullness of the presence of the living God. In verse 3, we see this, we hear this loud, clear, authoritative voice from the throne. That God will live with us, and we will be his people, and he will be with us as our God. Again, this is an upgrade from the garden. The best that they had in the garden, which was really great, was they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. We get the image that that was just, it wasn't all the time. It was just, it was just the cool of the day. It was something that they, you know, you imagine that they looked forward to. But here they behold, we behold God face to face. And again, there's no more limitations. There, there is, this is a consummation of all covenant promises. You know, throughout Scripture, God has promised to His people that He will be with us. And He is with us. We can say now that God is with us and He is, but we know Him here only by faith, where there we will know Him by sight. And as a result, in 1 John 3, we will be like Him. We will have an unhindered capacity for enjoying God there. That is true Christ-likeness and consummation. Fourthly, a gift of mercy. The death of death, sorrow, and pain. The death of death, sorrow, and pain. In verse 4, we see all hindrances removed. No more death, no more weakness, no more disabilities or limitations of any kind, no more defeat, no more loss, no more mourning over loss. 
No more sadness, no more hurt or ache or longing, no more dissatisfaction or discontent, no more pain, no more DGD, no more cancer, no more chronic migraines, no more strep throat, no more diabetes, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more none of that. For the former things have passed away, and behold, I am making all things new. And it says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes that God himself will be our comforter. And it doesn't say here that he kneels down to wipe every tear from our eyes, but that's just the image I get. To maybe you imagine your, your mom or someone just kneeling down and wiping away the tears from your eyes. And it says that God himself, that after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in, in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. He wipes away our tears and then the reasons for them. Death is swallowed up by life. Weakness is swallowed up by strength. Defeat swallowed up by victory. Mourning by comfort. Sorrow by joy. Ache by fulfillment. And pain and hurt by healing. These things shall flee away by the fullness of the presence of our beautiful God. And then he gives us an assurance that these things shall be. He says, it is done. In verse 6, it is, it is done. Um, and God's work is complete. There is an eternal rest here. Again, an upgrade from the garden, as good as that is. God rested on the seventh day when his work was complete. But now for the saints there shall be an eternal rest. Not just on the seventh day, an eternal rest for us. And again, by way of assurance, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Alpha, as if to say, you know, the Alpha is, is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega being the last, it would be, the, I am the A and the Z. So being I am the Alpha, he is saying that I am the beginning. I am the origin. All things begin in me. I am the creator. And I am the Omega. I am the end, the purpose, the destination where all this is going what all of it is for. And it is important to note that everyone meets their end in God. Everyone meets their end in Him. All shall face Him, either in comfort, in fulfillment, in satisfaction, in life eternal, or in wrath, in judgment, in accountability, and justice. He says that to the thirsty there will be satisfaction. This is to those who are thirsty for God. Those who are thirsty for God will be satisfied with God. As Matthew 5, 6 says, as Jesus says, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. This is heartening back to language of Isaiah 55, where God calls to each of us and he says, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. I will include you in that. And we see here that God delights to delight us 
He delights to be generous to us, to feed us from his riches, and there is no greater gift than he, that he can give to us than himself. And that is his promise, that those who long for him will have that longing fulfilled to overflowing. Now notice who these promises are for. Again, the one who conquers. Or you could also translate that as the one who overcomes, the one who is victorious. Is that to say that we have great strength, that it is by the strength of our might that we overcome these things? What does it mean that, that we overcome and conquer? What do we overcome and conquer? We overcome and conquer all that tempts us to turn away from this prize of the living God. We overcome and conquer the world, the flesh, and the demonic realm. This does not speak of our strength, but rather to our weakness and, our, and to his victory. Our weakness and our victory in holding fast to he who is the victor. Those who hold fast in spite of what claws at you to pull you away, you will receive his victory with them. Fifth, a gift of grace, the full rights of sonship. The full rights of sonship. Now, I, I'm not being PC and, and saying daughtership as well, and there's, there's a reason for that. Uh, Tim Keller, I, I think, puts it well when he says that, you know, uh, men shouldn't be any more, less comfortable about being called as being members of the bride of Christ than ladies should be uncomfortable about being called sons. And why is that? Is because daughters in this day did not receive an inheritance. It was promised to the sons. And so it calls all of us symbolically as sons because we are all promised the inheritance. And what is our inheritance? What is promised to us? What do we receive? What do we have to look forward to? God. God is our inheritance. God is our promise. God is what we will receive, the fullness of the presence of the living God. Again, that is our, our promise. That is what is promised to us by right. Romans 8 speaks to our adoption. And I want you to notice here that there is, an, again, an already and a not yet aspect to this. Um, Romans 8 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The language here is of having the adoption already legally completed, and we have the Spirit with us to assure us of that. But we, as, as adopted, those who were once orphans but have now been adopted as sons and daughters, we haven't yet been brought home. But we have the assurance of going home and the assurance of being fully reconciled and fully in the home of our Father. And here in Revelation 21, we have that adoption fully realized. We, we see the image of us as full-grown sons. And as sons, we receive what is Christ the Son's. Consider what has been His for all eternity. 
as a member of the Holy Trinity, as a son, eternal joy, fellowship with the Father, delight in the Father, shalom, everything being as it should be, intimacy, being known and deeply loved and adored, worship, bliss, perfect union, partnership, friendship, security, refuge, eternal life, reward, glorification. Being mature, grown sons like Christ, we will have the relationship with the Father like the Son has. No hindrances. No hindrances. Neither by sin or by our finitude in any way. And finally, a gift of mercy. Escape from God's wrath upon sinners. Our inheritance as sons, is God himself. But verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion or their inheritance will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It doesn't say it here, but you can do a, a quick study of the Bible's teaching on hell, particularly Jesus' teachings on hell, and you see that this lake of fire, it burns forever. And it is unquenched. It is a place of shame and everlasting contempt, of everlasting destruction. Revelation 14 has already told us that the smoke of torment rises forever and ever. And, and the last chapter, Revelation 20, says this lake of burning sulfur where the wicked are tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell is a reality. A few quick definitions. The cowardly, that's those who are fearful and faithful as, faithless as a result. They give way under persecutions and apostatize. They walk away from the faith. They, they turn back from a fight. The faithless is the unbelieving, the, those who do not trust in God. The detestable, the abominable, the defiled, polluted in heart, corrupted, stinking of death. And then murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, those who practice magic, who bind people under spells. And that still takes place today. Just turn on the news. Idolaters worshipers of false gods, and of course, liars. And so looking at this list, if you're, if you're honest with yourself, the natural question is, how can this not be my portion also? Because Jesus said about murder that if you just have hatred for someone in your heart, then you're guilty of murder. He said about adultery and sexual immorality that if you so much as lust after someone else, then you're guilty of adultery and sexual immorality. Idolatry. I mean, we are guilty of going after other gods, of worshiping other things, of putting other things above him as priority in our life. We are guilty of being timid and cowardly, guilty of being unbelieving. And so how can it be that this is not our rightful portion as well? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6 and close here shortly. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes this to the Corinthians. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, the reality of hell. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Only by the name of the Lord Jesus do we have the promise of, an, of a different inheritance. We once were called by these awful names, but now we are called by the name of Jesus. He, having made us his bride, we have taken his name. And, and side sermon, ladies, this is why you take your husband's last name, because it's a picture of this. We have taken his name and we are called by his name and all that is rightfully his is now ours. By nature, we are children of wrath and we deserve the full wrath of God poured out upon us forever and ever for what we have been. But it was poured out upon Jesus instead. And he taking our sin and receiving its wrath gave us his righteousness that we might rightfully receive his inheritance. And so in closing, as these gifts are promised to us, I just want to ask you, if I were to ask you, where do you believe that you're going to heaven when you die? Well, what would you say? What would be your honest answer? And then if you were to say, well, I hope so, or let me ask you this, and I, and I would just encourage you just to invite the Holy Spirit into helping you to see your own heart and to answer honestly. How much assurance do you have of eternal life? On a scale of 1 to 100, would it, would it be 50%, 75%, 99%? Do you have 100% assurance that you will spend eternity with God, with Jesus? And on what basis? Do you know that you can have 100% assurance? You can have 100% assurance. If you believe that it's, you know, if I ask you on what basis that you have this assurance, if it's some version of, well, I hope my good outweighs my bad, I, I hope God at least sees that I, I tried to do the right thing, you're standing on your own works, and that explains why you don't have 100% assurance. But when you stand on the works of Jesus... Could God not accept the righteousness of Jesus? Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He absorbed God's wrath in the full. And in His righteousness, this is His rightful reward. And in His grace and in His mercy, He extends it to you. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful passage. What a beautiful word. And yet I struggle to do it justice. Lord, would you encourage your saints with what is ahead? Would you strengthen us, Lord, with what we have to look forward to? God, meet us where we're at, in our griefs, in our longings, in our doubts. Lord, thank you for this beautiful and promised inheritance. And I pray for those who lack assurance that they would stop leaning on their own works, which will never be enough. And they would lean wholly on Jesus. 
and receive your offer of grace to be adopted as a son of the living God. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,